You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. My guest today is David Moons. David is a chartered marine scientist, best-selling author, holder of five Guinness World Records. David has a 90% success rate of locating major shipwrecks, including the deepest shipwreck ever found. David is the recipient of multiple awards and honours, including the Award of Australia. You can find David on Twitter at David L. Moons. Moons is spelled M-E-A-R-N-S. David, what a pleasure. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, we've been trying to do this for a while, so I'm glad we were able to find a day together. Yes, I, I was telling uh, uh, you off here that uh, I first reached out to you back in 2019, so we've been diligently uh, biding our time for the right moment. Um, I would love to kind of just start this off and ask, you know, you're known as, as, as a shipwreck hunter. What a title. How does one become a shipwreck hunter? Well, there's there's no university. There's no <laughs> definite path to, to do it. Mine came through uh, be, being a scientist, a marine, geology, uh, a marine geologist, and uh, I, I, um, a marine geologist, the type of research that I was doing uses instruments, geophysical tools. We call them remote sensing tools and specifically side scan sonar that allows us to look at the surface of the seabed and um, and analyze it and 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 tell a story about uh, how it formed how it eroded how it deposited all sorts of features and that tool just happens to be the main tool for searching for anything lost on the in the oceans the rivers uh, anywhere underwater um, and it's called side scan sonar or side scanning sonar and it's an acoustic device uh, that you tow behind a ship now we don't even tow it behind a ship we launch it using drones or autonomous underwater vehicles and the sonar sends out acoustic waves in a pattern that goes side one side to the other side of this sonar and they um, those acoustic waves uh, travel across the seabed they hit objects, they reflect back energy that is uh, uh, received and recorded and turned into images. And that's the type of uh, technology that I primarily use doing my master's thesis in America. And um, it's the main tool for finding lost objects, wh whatever it is, planes, shipwrecks. And after um, a sort of a long protracted um, academic uh, period, uh, getting my undergraduate and graduate, I decided I didn't want to continue in academia. I wanted to go into the offshore world. And so my first job was with a, a company that uh, did, did this on a full-time basis for the uh, U.S. Navy. Uh, so there's an office of the U.S. Navy called the Supervisor of Salvage that is responsible for recovering anything owned by the U.S. government that's lost in the ocean. 
and uh, and I was lucky enough to be hired by this company, um, really a pioneering company, the first to um, to to have an operational ROV in six thousand meters of water. Way back in the mid eighties, uh, I was hired in nineteen eighty six, and uh, I think we set that record in nineteen eighty eight. And that, or that threshold in 1988, which, and so it sort of launched my career into um, deep ocean operations, really, really ultra deep op ocean op operations. And, um, and along the way, um, we got a very important and kind of famous uh, shipwreck investigation. It was part of a murder trial. It's the first chapter in my latest book, um, uh, called the Lacona, uh, and it was a an Austrian guy um, wanted a was basically an insurance fraud. He 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 had his um, a cargo in a ship that he hired, and um, he insured it for eighteen million dollars. Said it was uranium processing equipment, but in truth, it was just scrap metal. And he he literally put a bomb. He loaded a ship with a time bomb. <laughs> what an evil thing to do. Um, loaded the ship with a time bomb, knowing that it's going to going across the Indian Ocean in the middle of the Indian Ocean, away from everything else and blow up and kill, kill all the crew. It, it killed half the crew. The other six survived. And because of that, they we were ultimately um, hired by this. Austrian criminal court to actually go out there and find this shipwreck because the defense said, until you find the shipwreck, um, you cannot convict my, my, this guy, his name was Udo Proch. It, it's an epic story. We could talk all day about this. Uh, it really is an epic story. And um, this guy, Udo Proch was a real character. And he literally stood up in the dock and said, where is this lacuna? You know, uh, you say I sank it. Where is it? It could be anywhere. <laughs> and he said, he said it was captured by pirates and it was scattered <laughs> around the ocean. The crew, the crew ran off with it. A Russian submarine sank it. All kinds of mad stuff. Um, when you know, th there was a lot of good evidence that that he was the guy that did it. And uh, so, anyhow, we were hired by this criminal court. This was my, literally my first major deep water shipwreck uh, investigation. My company won the contracts. My boss and I worked on that, um, but I became the project manager because it was mostly search. And in five months, we built all this equipment, go out there and find it and, and, and recover it. I'm sorry, this is a really long story, but this is the way they go. And, and you know, we, we, we found it. We did find it. It it sank in like um, when did it happen in uh, nineteen seventy seven or nineteen eighty something like that. Seventy seven, yeah. We were out there in nineteen ninety one, um, and and found it, and it was really deep, four thousand two hundred meters. Wow. So this is, you know, nearly half a kilometer deeper than Titanic. So at the time, one of the deepest shipwrecks ever found, and it was my first, and my company's first of that type. Well, it was highly successful. We found the wreck. We filmed the wreck. The evidence proved that Udo Proch was guilty. You know, he had this trial been going on forever. And in three weeks, he was in jail. 
um, for 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 uh, for life, and um, and that what was a, a, a big success for my company and uh, called Esport International, and and on the strength of that success, we got a lot more work, and we really I re I then personally really started to specialize in finding shipwrecks for the company and then with my new company blue water recoveries so uh i started as a marine biologist i went to graduate school became marine geologist and expert in, in geophysical tools and then parlayed that into working offshore specifically on shipwrecks so that is not that's not a path you can predict uh there is no real definite path you can predict you can be a marine archaeologist you can be a uh, historic historian researcher um and i just happen to have all the different skill levels that you need in terms of understanding oceanography understanding marine geology i learned how to be a project manager with eastport international um, as a scientist you do a lot of research in archives or in libraries and so i had that skill and and you put together about six or seven different skills that you need to do this, to, 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 to do this role, but somebody can develop it by themselves without going to university, without working in a company like Eastport, just training themselves. And, and really today, more and more amateur groups are out there finding shipwrecks on a, you know, certainly a weekly basis, you know, um, in the news. So it's, it's, it's really been, um, it was once the domain of only professionals like me, and now it's not. And that can only be a good thing. One of the things I'm most interested about that story you told me, well, there's two things really I'm interested in. And the first thing is, how, how far has the technology come from when you first started your career? And another question I'm interested in is, obviously you mentioned there that you know the authorities in that case, they, they turn to you, you get hired by a criminal court. Um, I, I'm interested to know, is it just the case that, that in the private sector that they are more advanced than, for instance, the the local coast guards? How, how does that work? I mean, I'm just interested in, you know, why the local councils aren't finding yeah. these themselves. Yeah, well, that's that's a good question. And it's, it's one of the reasons why when things happen in this country, uh, I get the call as opposed to, you know, there aren't authorities that that can do it. So answering your first question, yes, um, you know, my career spanned, uh, what, 37 years, something like that. And, and in that time, um, I would say it's gone from a developing industry where almost all the deep water equipment, everything you make was a prototype, a one-off, almost experimental. Uh, whereas today, it's a very mature industry, highly developed, a lot of practical experience, operational experience, good knowledge in the industry about how to do these things mm. um, and do them safely and, and to get very good repeatable results. And, and now the equipment, the majority of it, unless you're going seriously, seriously deep, is off the shelf. You can go to a company, specify it and buy it and then own it for yourself. Whereas at Eastport, we were building everything from scratch ourselves. Um, and the, 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 the sonars have improved. The, um, 
the type, there's more than one type of sonar. We now, in addition to side scan, we use multi-beam sonar. The now, instead of towing them, using a, 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 a towing a body of what we call a tow body and a long cable, which is very cumbersome, time consuming because the pulling a long cable through the water creates a lot of drag. And yeah. because of that, you can go very slowly in deep water. Sometimes we're, we're going one and a half, less than two knots, one and a half knots. The, the turns take enormous times. At the, we, we search in a grid pattern, right? It's like mowing the lawn. We say exactly what it is, mowing the lawn. So if you wanted to cover a spot in your lawn, think about your lawn and inside your lawn, there's an object that you're looking for and you're going to, you want to hit it. We want to search for it. We want to find it, but say you want to hit it. Well, and you're blind. You've got a, <laughs> you, you've got a, um, you can't see, but you have a device that's telling you, mow this lawn line straight, then come over and get the next line straight and so on. Then if you do that properly, you create no gaps, no holidays. Right. Okay. So we search in a grid pattern. So we create no gaps. But at the end of that grid, at the end of a line, you got to turn around. Well, when you have nine kilometers of cable behind your ship, towing at 4,000 meters of water with huge drag forces, it can take 10 or 11 hours to literally turn the ship around pull in the cable, turn the sonar around and get back on a line. So it's painfully slow. It's really, the majority of time it's boring. It's like watching paint dry, but then every once in a while you get the excitement of finding a shipwreck. Well, mm -hmm. now we've gone to autonomous vehicles, robots, drones that are battery operated, that are platforms, torpedo shaped bodies. They're hydrodynamically shaped that can carry multiple sensors, sonars, um, uh, cameras, lights, lasers, all sorts of things to, 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 to do searching and also once you find it. And the beauty of a drone is no cable. So you can go, it can go faster, you can tow it for, you can search at four knots as opposed to one and a half in the deep ocean. And you don't have this ridiculous turning circle. So autonomous autonomy is a um, is is probably the biggest recent development. Uh, you know they were they were uh, experimenting with these things when I first started, but now they're actually off their their everyday items. And and now to the point where companies are looking at autonomous ships, um, where you don't even have to go to sea. <laughs> you, you have something that can carry either a small uh, type of uh, boat or a platform that can carry an AUV out to the deep ocean and launch it, recover it, send you the data back and you're in, a, in a, an office, a hotel, your house, and you're looking at this imagery or large ships, you know, 78 meter ships that are in the future, possibly be autonomous, completely autonomous. They're now operating on a semi-autonomous basis, but that's what's going to happen probably in the next 30 years. It won't be as much fun. I can tell you, we had so much fun at sea early on because it was 
seat of the seat of the pants cowboy stuff really um safety was you, know, <laughs> you can't say this stuff today but you know we'd be on the back deck of a ship in flip-flops and shorts <laughs> no hard hats today you you almost can't even walk on the back deck of a ship you have to get permission everything is ultra ultra safe which is the right thing to do but it's not as enjoyable it's not as fun it's a different type of experience um it's far more comfortable it's you can you can you have a much longer happier life <laughs> you can be you can be married and have a family and have children back in my day it was really um you know a lot of the guys that I know aren't around today because they didn't make it <laughs> not because they were all in injuries, but it was, it was the lifestyle, you know? Right. Um, and, you know, I don't know how many of them are still married and everything, but, uh, but it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, it was real, real sort of pioneering, exploring type of experience. And I think it's less so today, but that doesn't mean, you know, anybody should not, you know, pursue, you know, a career like that. Um, one of the things that I'm really interested in, because you kind of talked about, you know, you're, you're at sea and it can be a bit boring and there's a bit of excitement if someone, if, you know, if you find something. And I, I'm just interested in, I guess, kind of the arc of the emotions from when you get the call up to you're out there, you're mowing your lawn, you're very methodical, you're going up and down, probably very monotonous. And then you find something. But I can imagine, you know, the type of things that you find. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, if there's a shipwreck, there's a good chance that someone could be could be dead within it. You know, what what is the kind of arc of emotions? Because you must go right through the cycle of emotions in one of these uh, one of these expeditions. Yeah, that that's that's very true. I, I talk I, I, I talk about it often to people, try to impress upon them that. Um, listen, there's a, when I started, they called it an arch, this ability to go out there and find something lost in the ocean. It was more, um, more creative, more artistic. The sonos weren't good. You had to really use your imagination. Today, it's, it's more of a science than it is an arch. Um, but still, there's a psychological aspect to it because you're looking for something that you don't know is in your box that you don't know. There's no guarantee that you're going to find it. And the first thing I tell people, I've I've one of the best track records in the industry, mm. you know, particularly for looking for historical shipwrecks. But I, the first thing I tell to a new client or a group, um, so listen, um, there is no guarantee that this will be found. I can give you a very very high percentage of discovery, but um, you know, ninety five percent, ninety eight percent, but there's no guarantee. And there's this psychological aspect of going out there, finding something. First off, if you're involved in the research, you could spend months looking for documents and archives, putting together the whole project, uh, you know, all your lost clues, analyzing that, establishing a search box, then doing all your other due diligence, looking at the geology of the seabed, the, the hydrography, what uh, uh, the oceanography, getting your permits, getting your funding, on and on, putting your team together, buying. So there's this huge, huge buildup that oftentimes is me measured in, used to be six months for every one month at sea. But I've worked on projects where 
we've spent six years in development. You know, well, I would say over a six-year period before we we conceived of the project before we could actually get the funding and go out to see. So there's this huge buildup of anticipation and expectation and you're carrying not just your expectations, but lots of other people. Yeah. Only a small select group of people can actually go to see and do this. They're real professionals, the experts, people with the skills. But generally, you're carrying along a whole lot of other people with you. And, um, and that builds uh, more expectation. And then you go out to sea and, you know, uh, the, big, the, big, the big variable, which you cannot control, is, is, is the weather. You yeah. know, a mother nature, what it throws at you, you know, uh, bad, you know, bad sea conditions, storms, um, you know, you cannot control it. You try to control it by picking the best weather window, but you can never guarantee that. And so then you run into problems and then you have technical issues and so on and so forth. And then you go through your primary search box where you had the highest probability of belief of finding your object whatever it was and it's not there and then you're going oh now what do i do do i do i go do i keep searching do i expand my box and if i have to expand my box which is the worst thing do i expand it to the north to the south to the east to the west yeah, yeah. all these things and at the same time a clock is ticking yeah tick 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 and that's basically the, the days that you have funded or funding for paying so generally you go out with a fixed budget how many whatever it is hundreds of thousands of millions and that gives you 20 days at sea 30 days at sea and that's it you know you may have a contingency but generally there isn't anybody that says oh 30 days keep going you have another 30 more that's it so there's this huge time pressure yeah and and so you go through some incredible lows uh, of 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 uh doubting your research doubting your clues doubting the sources doubting yourself if you made the wrong decisions i should have gone north I sh and i went south and um and then and then all of a sudden without any um uh, any any forewarning of it any clue any thing to tell you it's going to happen all of a sudden in a second, the shipwreck pop, pops up on the screen. It can happen that quickly that you start seeing the images come from the side scan sonar and that's your shipwreck. And depending on a number of variables, sometimes just based on that sonar imagery alone, if no other ships have sunk there, that you know that that's your ship. And then it's just pure exhilaration, pure exhilaration. It's it's all that work and anticipation and expectation of yourself, your team, your supporters, the wider public being realized as a success in an instant. And, and the only thing that I can compare it to, um, I'm not obviously an Olympic athlete, but you can imagine what it's like for an Olympic athlete 
in, in an athletic event to 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 you know break the tape as the winner yeah you know having 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 worked and trained for years and slowly built yourself up to a championship status and then in an instant you've gone from not being a champion to being a champion or or some sort of immediate result like that and and fortunately i've experienced that uh multiple times that's not the only way that you you experience it but what i was getting back to or want to get back to is this psychological aspect of doubting yourself or doubting your clues or what happens if the search goes protracted um people start losing faith and 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 confidence and and that's when you have to make the key decisions that's when you have to hold your nerve you have to be confident in in your approach in the information you're using and 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 a lot of people who haven't done this and haven't been through it are put in that pressure cooker and they wilt um they make a bad decision um uh and and they may decide to go in the wrong direction and find out that the shipwreck was just beyond where they were looking and yeah. had they just you know maintained their plan they probably would have been successful and um anyhow so that's the that's a, a different element that people don't realize unless you're out at sea and in that hot seat and I, and I should get back because I didn't answer your other question about the authorities. Oh, go on, please. Um, so you had asked about uh, why is the public sector often doing this? Why is somebody like me called to do it rather than the authorities? And it's simply that, and, and I guess it's a little bit understandable. These, these, these are such rare events, uncommon events, that it's probably cost prohibitive for an authority, a local authority, uh, a county, or even a, a, a country to maintain uh, the equipment, um, the personnel, the, the facility to house it all, to be able to respond so quickly that, you know, you can get out to sea immediately. And, and, and um, so that's what happens here, you know, uh, there are some small units. I mean, in this country, they they have no capability. There is no inherent capability in the UK to go search for something that has a national interest. Mm. They, you know, God forbid, you know, uh, I don't even want to mention a national airliner, but say our national airliner crashed. Uh, in the in 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 not even in that deep of water beyond 200 meters of water um they then have to turn to the industry to the offshore industry the people that work in oil and gas well, we don't have the capabilities to do it in america fortunately they've got the u.s supervisor of salvage on the east coast there's also something similar on the west coast but they only have a couple of uh, uh national assets that can do this um and and because of that private industry is often uh called into the breach to 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 get involved and and that happens to me now more often after the emiliano sala incident 
uh, I get the call. Um, it, it's happened multiple times. Um, whereas um, the public are looking for somebody to help and there isn't this capability within the country authorities, the funding to do it and absent some, you know, some real evidence that uh, that the country is going to spend, you know, serious amounts of money to find something, the families are left without any options. And then they start searching and, 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 you know, uh, oftentimes it comes, it comes, um, it winds up at my door and I'm more than willing to help because I can understand exactly how, how, how they feel. Yeah. And I think you mentioned kind of the Salah incident. I, I'm, I'm in Cardiff. So obviously, so where I am, that's, that was obviously a massive, massive story. And I remember one of the things that kind of prompted that question was, I seem to remember that back in 2019, when it happened, that, you know, the, 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 the plane went down and I think the authorities off the top of my head, they looked for the plane for maybe three days. And I remember then they kind of, they, they called off the search and, you know, this was kind of met with a, a, a very understandably so a big outcry. I remember the president of Argentina, you had sports stars, Lionel Messi, Kylian Mbappe, uh, you know, saying, you know, this search has, has kind of, um, uh, you know, this search has kind of have uh, got to go on. Um, so I, I'm kind of wondering, you know, how did you then get the call up for, for that? I'm, I'm interested in kind of how that then led to, to you, essentially. Okay. Well, the search that you were talking about was actually the surface search for survivors. And that was being led by the people, the Channel Island authorities, their own um, uh, um, Coast Guard, if you will. Uh, it, it, it was actually the, the, the head of the ports there. Um, and they also have a a volunteer service that has aircraft that can go up and, and search uh, for people. But what they were looking for were, were the two guys, David Ibbotson and Emiliano Sala. Had they survived the crash and maybe they were in a raft or clinging to wreckage, or maybe they could swim to the island. That's what they were looking for. That was the sur surface search. Um, that's different than what I did, which was the right. underwater search for the plane knowing that it had crashed, okay? And really, the surface search went on for as long as anybody could have realistically expected it to, because after three days, in those conditions, nobody was survived. They would have drowned or through exposure alone. So really, the search went on for a, actually a protracted period. It was one of the longest searches and most expensive searches in the history of, of the island. What we did was totally different. So I got involved because, um, you know, the accident happened on a, on a Monday, I think. And um, it was being played in the news, you know, um, this, this, you know, obviously high profile of football in the middle of a, of an expensive transfer in the middle of uh, transfer, you know, season. Yeah. Everybody's tuned into that, those things. Um, I'm a football fan, so I was aware of it. And I saw this, I saw this, uh, this clip on the news of Emiliano's sister, Romina, 
in an interview. And she's clearly a young girl. You know, she was in her 20s, mid-20s. Clearly a young girl by herself. She doesn't know the language, speaking Spanish. And um, and she's in tears. She's And she's desperately pleading um, for for help. She, and and I just I just I just put I, I could just imagine what that poor girl was going through. I felt so bad for her. And um I heard on the tel- I heard I was with my wife. We were out somewhere away from the office, and I heard on the radio this again, this report that they abandoned the search. And 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 that now there's a question about where the plane was. And and I just thought, I told my wife, I said, you know what, I'm not gonna well, I'm not gonna come home. It was it was late, it was already past working hours. I said, I'm gonna go to the office and 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 look into this. And literally in 15 minutes, with the information that was available, I thought actually that plane could be found. So I contacted um the embassy that was supporting Romina and let them know that, you know, I'd be happy, listen, if they need any advice or anything like that, and I only live five minutes from where I am right now. This is my office in Midhurst. I live five minutes away in a nearby village. You know, I sent out this email. By the time I got home, there was a reply. And a couple of conversations later, I was scheduled then to drive to Cardiff the next morning, the next morning. So this was, uh, that was all happening on a Thursday. The meeting was happening on a Friday where the UK air accident investigation branch representatives or investigators from the branch were going to be meeting with Romina and various other people in Cardiff at like 11 o'clock in the morning. And, uh, and so then I was invited to that meeting as a as a as a as a volunteer advisor any whatever i could do i was just saying listen i'll just drive to cardiff I'll, I, if i can help i can help if i can i can't and that's was the start of it you mentioned earlier you know about dealing with the pressure i mean i mean i remember just this situation i mean when you've got people like the president of argentina involved this was this was obviously global news you know you you were the man then in the you know at the kind of lead in it uh, how was that pressure for you? I, I, I personally, for me, I wouldn't be sleeping at night. I mean, I'm curious, you know, what, what was that time like for you? Well, well, it was very intense. It went incredibly quickly. I guess the pressure came from the fact that in that meeting in Cardiff on that Friday, first off, I wasn't allowed into the meeting. <laughs> so I drove three hours to get to this meeting. I was met by um, and I'll forget some of the people's names, but the um, uh, the ambassador, the consulate was there helping Romina. Um, so there were, and then it was a translator. Um, and uh, they came down and, and I saw the two, I was there before the AAB guys came. I saw the two come in and they came down and said, oh, this is a, this is a private meeting. Police matters will be discussed. It's confidential. Um, you can't come in the meeting. And so uh, there was nothing I could do. I it was in a hotel, a local hotel. I sat down in the restaurant and actually 
I used that time. I had to wait like two or three hours. I used that time to start calling all my contacts up. I need a boat. I need sonars. I need a crew. I started putting all that together. And because I went into this meeting feeling that plane could be found. The clues were good enough. I mean, they had a radar that literally showed the plane at the last known position to the point where it was only, um, you know, a, a couple thousand feet off the sea surface. And to me, that told me that plane crashed right there. And it was going to be not far from that last known position. And that if you got out there quickly, you'd be able to find the plane. And so that was the confidence in my knowledge going into that meet. And that's why I wanted to put together a search plan. Finally, I got called up to the meeting and realized immediately, oh, it wasn't confidential or private. The room was full of people. <laughs> there were police liaison officers, but there were people from Cardiff Football Club. There were uh, lawyer, pe legal people there. There was obviously Romina, the two AA, because there were like, you know, 10, 10 people. It wasn't a, a small meeting. So I, I was being kept, kept out, I think. Um, and fair enough. Anyhow, uh, they, I sat down and they, the AAB guys turned me and said, what are you doing here? <laughs> Who are you? What are you doing here? And I thought that was a little bit odd because, you know, um, well, I, I've done enough of these projects and I'm known for doing them. Uh, all you have to do is type my name in. If you want to know who David Mertz is, you just type my name in Google and you see that I have a track record of doing these things. I'm not just a, a bloke that walked off the street and said, hey. <laughs> so um, so I, I, I said, you know, I, I think it could be found. And I've been working, you know, I've had this time and I think it can be found. Um, and and what immediately came back is the AAIB, at least particularly one in, of those individuals, uh, had a totally different opinion. Um, one, um, there's no guarantee we can find it. Well, that's always the case, but he was really pessimistic, not optimistic like me. Uh, he said, the currents will drag it away. First off, the plane crashed so violently, will it be destroyed and in bits? And that makes it easier for the currents or the fishermen to take it away. The other thing, it, it, it sank in an area of the uh, English Channel where there's lots of other wreckage, lots of other things, geology that makes it hard to find. And finally, and probably this is the most well, you know, I think probably the most damaging thing where they said, even if we find it, we, we don't think we'll learn anything new. Basically, they, without saying it, they believe they knew what, why the plane crashed. Right. You know, they, they had formed their conclusions. That's my belief. And the conversation that I had with them pretty much said that. And I said, well, I'm sorry, I disagree. I think it can be found. And that meeting broke up. I was able to connect with Romina and um, uh, Emiliano's personal agent, Mesa and Dai. Um, 
was the other person I was working with. And we immediately started um, putting together a plan that Friday. So this is how fast it went. Thursday, I contacted him. Friday, we're in that meeting. On the drive home from Cardiff, I'm on the phone with Mesa the whole time. He immediately starts to go fund me. The money starts rolling in. He says, how much do you need? I said, well, let's start with like 150,000. And then it's winter time and that's the worst time to search. You get lots of downtime. On Saturday, I'm down in Southampton looking at the vessel that I wanna hire uh, and, and, and lining up the sonar. So by Saturday, I've got midday, I've got, I've got my boat, I have my sonars, I have my team. I know what we're going to do. Sunday, I'm on a plane to 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 Guernsey. Uh, Sunday, I'm on the plane, and I don't even know it. I'm on the plane. I just got on a plane to Guernsey. Mesa's in the front of the plane. I'm in the back of the plane. We were separated by like 20 aisles. I didn't even know it till till we're texting each other. We're on the plane together. Uh, the weather is so bad. Um, and I've flown a lot around the world. We actually had to do a touchdown and take off because oh it, <laughs> a pilot got nervous. So we came in and he said, no, 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 I'm coming around again. The weather was that bad. And, and, and by Monday, we raised the, we had raised the amount to 350,000 by Monday. We had the money. We had everything lined up and we announced we're going. And the AAIB had to reverse their position and say and say we're going to join you and they hired another ship so it was very very intense uh by wednesday i moved the boat our search vessel from southampton or from uh southampton down to the islands down to guernsey and um and saturday was it saturday we were out searching so it all went in a week so the soonest we could get out there uh, the first weather window. And we had this small boat uh, with a crew of about seven people, something like that. And the AAIB hired this expensive ship, you know, 60, 70 meter ship out of, uh, out of the continent, out of, I don't know where it was in, uh, in the Netherlands or something like that. Um, and it was a bit of almost like a, we could see them on AAS running down the channel to get to the search area at the same time that we did. And, and fortunately, um, we, we had a, an agreement between ourselves and the authorities about how we were going to do this because we, we were going to work together and we did, but we chose the correct box to search in and, and, and found it faster. So, so it was this a really intense period. Um, was there pressure? Um, I think it was a different kind of pressure. I didn't feel like the pressure, am I going to succeed or fail? I didn't even think about any of that in a personal content context. I was just thinking about doing the best job possible and, and doing it all. And, and fortunately, I had a lot of, I've done a lot of work, but I've done a lot of these high, high profile projects where the yeah. media are involved and you're being looked at constantly um the public are involved they have an invested in interest you know everybody is hopeful for you to find it so 
it, it, it wasn't a new thing for me. And, and, and so in, then, in that sense, I'm really grateful that I've had the career that I've had to be able to step into something like that, help out somebody. Initially, all I wanted to help was that girl. And then, the, then um, Emiliano's mother came. You know, she was at came. She came on the next plane. That, and and we met her, and we I spent time with her. So helping out the family and really had a team, a bond, a real bond with Mesa. We worked really closely together. I, this wasn't all me. There was lots of other people, and obviously all the people who donated. And that and that's the other thing. You, you feel, you know, of course, you have people like Mbappe giving fifty thousand quid or whatever, or 50,000 euros. And you had some very high profile footballers who were donating, but you had a lot of public too. You know? I was one of them. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So we felt, and, and I explained this to the family and to Mesa that, listen, in terms of the media, we can't just now, we've gotten all this money from all these people. We can't just go into a shell and do this on a confidential basis. These people are have, have you know empowered us, have given us the money to do this. We have to keep them up to speed. So all of the there's all, at the same time that you're doing this operational aspect, you have to decide how am I going to how am I going to deal with the media? The media attention obviously was very great. Mesa, God bless his soul. Uh, Mesa for an incredible character, and frankly, he was more important to this whole thing than I was because he had the context uh, and the drive in terms of uh, getting the funding and, and, and all sorts of things behind the scenes. He was behind the scenes guy. I was in front of the scene, in front of the scenes, but he didn't, he didn't want to speak to the media. That's just his own personal approach. So it, it, it turned for me to be the spokesman on behalf of the family. So you have to do that in the, in the right way. So the main thing is, how you handle that and 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 at the same time you know once a body was found that changes the ball game and so there had to be an agreement between myself and the AARP about how we how we how we how we because uh, they wouldn't say anything but you know the press would come to me so it, it was complicated it was intense uh did I feel pressure no I just felt um you know a lot of work that's all and 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 as I said, for 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 to have had the career that I've had to put me in that position with the right skills and experience and profile, that people said, yeah, this guy he can do it. He's he's bona fide. He's the real deal. Um, where I can volunteer my time. Also, I didn't have to worry about it. I have a successful business that allows me to give all my time free. I donated like, just like you, um, is really a, a, a very satisfying thing for me to be involved with and, and that it's successful and that, that, that the most important things that came out of it is that Emmy's body could be recovered and they had a burial and they have something to bring home that's really important sadly that wasn't the case for the ibbotson family 
And and then we did it for the Ibbotson family. They yeah, repeated the exact same thing. And I did the as much as I could. It was a different type of. And actually that there was a lot of pre, there was as much there was a lot of pressure on that because what we were doing was more seat of the pants using technical divers. And that's a whole other story. But we did it again for them. And sadly, you know, David's body was never found, but at least the family knew that he wasn't there. Absolutely knew we, and that we did everything and they did everything because they raised that money. They did set up a GoFundMe and raise the money and spoke to people. So, you know, David's wife and his children, I dealt mostly with one of his daughters, were able to, you know, they've lost their father, they've lost a husband, you know, devastating, but they did everything they possibly can. And that's really important to them. And then at the end of all of this, months later, for them to do the blood chemistry of Emiliano's body and to find out that he had 58% carbon monoxide in his blood. Listen, nobody, that was on nobody's radar. That was completely unexpected and really a very, very important piece of information that changed the nature of the whole investigation and not just of that incident, but in terms of the future um, of, of, of air safety in this country with these small planes. How many people are flying around with planes without carbon monoxide? sensors the type of sensors that people have in their houses yeah they don't have one um and so that brings me back to that first meeting in cardiff at the hotel where the aaib said listen even if we find it or they intimated to me even if we find it we're probably not going to learn anything new about the cause and that was blown right out of the water with that, with that, that, with that finding from Emiliano's body, which his body would never have been recovered had we not initiated the search and found the plane. So, um, you know, what can I say? Um, it was something I volunteered to do. I was very happy to do it. I'm. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, I felt, you know, closely connected to both families and I understood exactly without me suffering that loss as much as I could. I know how that loss affects people because almost everything I go out there and find there's death involved. And this is, I've been through this before and I know how this information changes people's lives and how these incidents uh, change your lives and how getting some of this information could, 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 you know, make things a little bit easier. So that's all I can say about that, which is a settle, which is a lot to say actually. And, and it's, it's almost an epic story in itself, isn't it? Oh man. And, and I got to say, I remember, you know, following the story and, and, you know, I, I, from, from everything that you, you've said today, I mean, I, I would, you might not appreciate me saying it, but I would I would use the title hero for for exactly what you did. And I know that myself, my friends, you know, all the local communities around you, they all very, very much appreciated what you did. And interestingly, I remember watching 
I think it was a Sky News interview that you gave beforehand. And I think that the mood was quite pessimistic. I mean, obviously, of course, people are, are hopeful. But and I remember you said, this is an MH370. And you seem to have a real air of kind of confidence. And I seem to remember, and of course, this, this was a number of years ago now, but I seem to remember you found it pretty quickly. Um, yeah. how, so, so could you talk me through, you know, when you actually set out, how quickly did you right. have the turnaround? It seemed to be quick, very quick. It, it was in hours. Uh, we found it oh. on the third line. And, and here's the way that worked, right? <clears throat> so the authorities from the radar traces had this last known position, and, and, and they were able to refine that while we were building up to the search. Um, and, and so we knew pretty much we have what we call a last known position. And then we established era of boundaries. What's the potential? How far off could we be? not 10 miles, but, you know, half a mile, whatever, but we established a box and it was two nautical miles, I think two nautical miles by two nautical miles, four square nautical miles, which isn't big, it's small, but in the channel, it's big. Uh, and the type of search instruments that we were using. So the, it was agreed between the AI, AAIB's funded uh, search using that big ship uh, they would search one half and we would search the other half. And how we, we would decide what the, what it, what it was. Well, I had my favorite side based on just almost an intuition. Maybe this is where the art, art comes into it, based on an intuition, based on a number of things. I thought there's going to be a better chance we're going to find it here. It also made more sense that we were there because we were a smaller boat we're right in the channel where there's this uh, uh, there's this um, a special zone, like a traffic zone, where ships go one way and they go the other way, so there's no crashes and everybody knows it. So it's like a highway. It's one of the busiest stretches of water in the world, the English Channel. I mean, there's just ships going past, and these are big ships going really fast. Our little boat, they would crush us, and we're towing, you know, behind, not really far, but we're still towing something in the water a sonar. And um, so uh, for those reasons, I chose this one side as well. And we got there first because we were just coming out of Guernsey. That was the key of getting that boat from Southampton and leaving it in Guernsey. I got them over in the middle of the week when the weather was good. I say, you guys go, I'll pay for it. You go, you got a hotel or whatever. So we, 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 pre-stationed our vessel. So we were only two hours out in terms of getting out there where they had to come out from, from the North Sea. And uh, we got there first. And, uh, and I started searching on the center line, but I could look into their box because my sonar was looking sideways. But we found it in our box on the third line. It was basically in two hours, but then we wanted to be sure because it was mangled. The plane was essentially all there there. So this idea that it completely fragmented and was lost, not the case. The plane was essentially all there. I mean, bits were broken. I mean, the plane was completely destroyed and bits of it were gone. The tail was gone. The, the, the bits, the ends of the wing were gone, but everything else was there. And, um, and so it looks like a crumpled mess on the sonar. And so we wanted to get a number of different images. I think we hit it like seven, eight times until we were certain. So meanwhile, we could see that they're searching 
their box. We're doing our thing. I don't know they were looking at us. I think they were completely ignorant to what we were doing or oblivious because we could see the pattern that they were doing. And then I called them up and said, listen, I think we've got it. Come over and uh, come over because they had the ROV. We didn't have an ROV, so they had to dive on it. I said, come over. But they had their own sonar and they looked at it and they said, uh, we don't think it looks that good. <laughs> we don't think it looks that good. And I said, well, we're confident. We're So we said, dive, you know, you need to dive on it. So they switched from being the side scan sonar to the ROV. Meanwhile, we're waiting and waiting. It's getting dark. The weather's going up. Um, I didn't want to wait forever. And uh, finally, I uh, and they wouldn't tell us anything. I asked to be on that boat. I said, listen, on behalf of the family, I want to be on that vessel while you do the ROV search. They said, no, no, we won't allow it. So, you know, that's the kind of... It was political. I don't know. No, yeah. You know, yeah, that's the, that's the, that's the obvious conclusion, you know. Uh, whether it's political or however you want to put it, but, you know, it's... Listen, it's our investigation. It's not yours. You, you've been a, you've been in it. You've been, you've meddled into this thing or whatever they want to <laughs> say. You know, that's a kind of, kind of thing. But listen, I understand it. So you know, I don't, I don't. Um, but I, you know, I, 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 I want, I want this thing to be successful. I want to give them the best information. Anyhow, we went back and 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 it was on the way back that I got the call and they said. Um, we found it and and there's a body there and they wouldn't say which body it was. They were very careful about that. I didn't find that out till later. Um, and, um, and they, uh, and, 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 and then we had to, uh, uh, an agreement that I had to help them find, get to the, to the families because the families were in touch with me and they couldn't, they, there's a very, very strict, important protocol. You have to follow that. They have to be, First, the families have to find out first from the authorities, the police or police liaisons or whatever. So I was helping and in, involved in that. Anyhow, that all in all, the the relationship with the AAB was worked well. It was cooperative. It is successful. But you know, um, um, so so I don't know where that that led us down to that. That but you had asked how quickly you found it. Yeah, found yeah, it. Yeah. Found it right there very bittersweet i imagine but was that the most satisfying shipwreck find that you've had in your career no 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 i no i think they're they're all uh, people ask me that in a different way they say what's your what's your most successful what's your favorite and i have no favorite they're like do you have the, i have three children do i have a favorite of my three children no i've had you know i i because again, through my career, people ask, how many shipwrecks have you found? So I had to count them and I keep count. So I found what I call 26 major shipwrecks, important things. And um, and I don't even know if this solar plane is on the list because it's kind of different. But um, other things have been, you know, I've been on ones where I, I've told you about that exhilaration and that moment. Yeah. There was none of that. This wasn't a happy experience yeah. at all. You know, we all knew, you know, we were happy that we found it, pleased that we found it. Yes, we've done our job. 
it's there. They can move on to the investigation. The family will have answers, but there was no pleasure, personal pleasure. It, it's, I, I'm obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased uh, in my judgment. I'm probably most pleased in my judgment because it was my judgment that it could be found, that it was something that I should step in the middle of, you know, this is a big high profile story in the country, not just here, but in France, in Argentina. And I voluntarily inserted myself into the middle of that. But I did it for the right reasons. And I did it because I knew that I had the skills and experience and the profile to, to make a difference. And that was a professional judgment that I made and 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 that judgment was vindicated, and I'm pleased about that. And obviously, you know, I'm I'm pleased what we could do for 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 both families more than one family than the other. And 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 that and, and that, you know, for the Ibbotson family because he was clearly being billed as the bad guy. You know, didn't have the right license. The, it was an ill-advised trip in terms of the timing of it and all sorts of things. So he was going to be the guy, the fall guy. You know, the guy lost his life is going to be the fall guy. Everything's going to point back to him. And I feel the family can take something away from this finding that Emiliano Sala had 58% carbon monoxide in, in his blood because, I, I you know, I'm sorry, common sense tells you that in that small plane where David Ibbotson can almost touch hands with Emiliano, sitting in the same open cabin, breathing the same air, that he is also going to have a high percentage. I mean, over 50% is fatal. O over 30 or 40, and you're like passed out. And even the coroner's point report was that. Emiliano was uh, totally unconscious. So how do you have a 28-year-old elite athlete sitting in this, in this cabin where a guy who's a 58-year-old or however old David was, middle-aged guy, not, you know, not in shape, fighting the controls of a plane under pressure, how, what's his consumption going to be like? Yeah, And I think the family, I, and I have some indication the family can, can take something away from that, that it's not just David was a bad pilot and caused this whole thing, you know, that's not the case, you know, and his story is more complicated. And so I, I've, I'm, I'm grateful that that came out of it as well. And I, and I use this story. You mentioned MH370. <clears throat> of course, this is a plane that nobody knows where it is. There's all these conspiracy theories, all the search. And nine years later, we still don't have any answers. And, and again, people want to say, point to the one pilot that he was suicidal. It was a suicide murder you know, plot by the pilot. 
or it's something else, but we don't know. And we won't know until we recover that plane. Just like we would never have known about the carbon monoxide unless Emiliano's body was recovered and that plane, and, and obviously the plane was found. So we don't know. And you cannot know until you know. And the only way to know is to recover that plane. Have you ever thought about going to, I, I'm not sure if you've ever, you know, been looking for it or if you've ever been called up to get involved in that. Is that something you ever have or ever would get involved in? Well, yes, I was called up. Uh, oh, you were? Oh, well. Yeah, yeah I was, um, when it first crashed nine years ago, uh, I was at, well, that must have been, what, 2014 or something? Yeah, 2014. I, yeah. I was, um, I was working on another project in Oman. I was in a very remote part of the world, a small island in the Indian Ocean off the coast of Oman, where we have no internet, no cell coverage, nothing. We have no communications. And while I was there, that incident happened. The uh, Australian authorities who were responsible for it contacted me, but I didn't even know about it. I found out weeks later when I got to land, and by that time, they had moved on uh, and found somebody else to advise them. And um, uh, after that, I I volunteered. I did the same thing. I said, "Listen, I'm happy to help." Um, and I I, I kind of personally regret that I was never involved because I think. Uh, they could have used somebody of my experience. And, and also, part of, I think part of the reason Australia were willing to put their hand up and take the responsibility for the search because there's, you know, it's a Malaysian plane, there's Chinese nationals on board, there were only five Australian nationals on board, um, was because of the success that I had in leading the search for two different shipwrecks in Australia in deep water. That had never been done before, okay? In one shipwreck, people it was a similar thing. People thought never be found, and we found it. We found it quite quickly. It was very, very high profile. Funding from the government go right up to the prime minister uh, at the time. Uh, and 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 I led that expedition, and then I led another expedition on on the opposite coast. This is the search for HMAS Sydney off of uh, for Western Australia, and then after that, I was the project manager for the search for the Australian hospital ship off of Brisbane. These are two World War II ships, but that one was off of Brisbane and that was for a, a different government, but with, with, with government funding. And so I think, I think those successes sort of maybe crept into the psyche of the people in Australia that, you know, yes, we can lead these type of deep water search expeditions and, and they can be successful, and um, but sadly, I wasn't involved. So, uh, and do you think that plane will ever be found? Not if not if they don't look. Right, that's the problem right now that nobody is looking. So if they don't look, it'll never be found. But I yes, I believe it can be found. I believe it can be found, but it 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 has to. They have to have a, a different, um, somewhat of a different. Suffer, somewhat of a different mentality to it. And again, maybe this gets into the psychology that I had mentioned previously, because, 
You know, they went out there and searched, and 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 the clues are co- totally different. Again, we can have a whole long discussion about that. But um, so it's a big box. It's very uncertain. There's no guarantees, but it definitely sank in the Southern Indian Ocean. You cannot get that wreckage floating and being recovered where it was found on Reunion Island and Madagascar and Mozambique without it crashing in the Indian Ocean. That's an oceanographic fact, okay? But exactly where it crashed is the big unknown. And there's lots of people working on it. And there's now, unfortunately, lots of controversy and competing things. So this is what happens in these sorts of big international stories. You get lots of people that believe they have the expertise or the skills to say where it is. And the truth is, is a small number of people truly do. And then you get the cranks, the, the conspiracy theorists come in and it, it messes the whole thing up. And, yeah. uh, and that's what happened with Sydney, why Sydney wasn't found. I, I, we could have found Sydney in the 80s. We didn't have to wait. You know, they, they kept saying, oh, it's the new technology. The sauna that we were using was developed in the 80s. We found it in 2008. And that was part of, you know, they, they like to say, oh, there's new technology. We were using new technology. No, we were using really old technology, but we still found it. Um, so we could have found it way back then. But these conspiracy theories just led to confusion and, 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 and lack of confidence and competing theories. And that's what, unfortunately, is happening with MH370. So what the authorities have to take this mindset and this is not just Australia, not just uh, Malaysia or China, but really international air safety worldwide, is that we are not going to stop till that plane is found, right? We're not going to just do one expedition because that's what happened the last time. Somebody said, oh, we have a really good, we've got a, a pinpoint, they said, a virtual pinpoint. And there was no such thing as a virtual pinpoint. Well, they, when you search that virtual, when somebody stands up and says you search that virtual pinpoint and it's not there, then that person says, well, you know what? I'd like some more money. And they say, well, we searched your virtual pinpoint. We're not going to give you any more money. They lo- you lose confidence. You lose credibility. And the, the approach that I think they should have is that the... These countries, they've got oceanographic vessels that they should spend a couple of months every year going down there to search the area. In addition to the industry searching, there could be a paid search, there could be this, there could be a, a number of things. But basically, continuing for a number of years so that you're expanding this box, not to the point that you cover the whole Indian Ocean, but that you cover all the probable areas in all possible areas. Because until we do that, we don't know what happened to that plane. And we all fly in these planes. Triple sevens, they're the workhorse of the airline industry. I mean, they're one of them. Uh, and, And how many times do you fly in a triple seven? So somebody had suggested, what if we all put, 10 pennies, 10 pence, 10 cents, 10 Australian cents of every ticket 
into a pool for air safety internationally. In a year, you'd raise 100 million, hundreds of millions, easily fund the search, multiple searches, and have a kitty to be able to have a, 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 a company or an organization or a pool of equipment, ships, and personnel to respond in incidents like this internationally around the world when the Americans are not doing it or when you know, the French are not doing it. Um, and you saw that with this Titan submersible. It's the same kind of situation. Um, an incident happens, international waters, remote location. Uh, who's got responsibility for it? Who's going to fund it? You know, who's going to conduct the investigation? And and that incident's the profile of it. You know, the story. Yeah led to this, you know, this amazing response. On the Monday, you know, I was asked the question, uh, can they put something together out there to get there on time? I said, no, you know, they, I, I, and by the Thursday, they had the people out there to, to actually find it. No, and what happened is all what we thought happened, the thing imploded and, 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 and there was never any chance to recover any survivors but that that kind of response uh, nobody knows who paid who who funded that that would have been multi-millions for that kind of response but at one time the french were on their way they did get to the scene there were ships and all sorts of things well you know the same situation for international air safety and i think that's that's the type of thing that needs to be uh thought about and in this country i don't think there's enough attention the amount of money that is spent in the counties or 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 or, or, or you know nationally by the central government is peanuts but we're an island nation with boats and planes flying all the time you know and uh and every once in a while, whether it's a plane or a boat, I've been called, I can tell you multiple times after Emiliano Sala, one for a boat off of, you know, off North Wales. Um, and again, again, uh, who's responding with the right equipment? And that was a, a bit of a, a, of, a, of a case that was, I think, managed badly. Something a boat could have been found almost on day one it took a month or so to find it because you know they weren't looking in the right place but with the right equipment and yeah yeah man i i could sit you talking to you yeah. until the cows come home um i appreciate you're a busy man and and i'd love to kind of just wind down um before i ask you to kind of tell us to sign off and tell us about you know what projects you're working on and whatnot i'd love to perhaps ask you i guess a more general question uh, so the people listening today, it sounds like you've had a hell of a career. Uh, you know, you've 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 reached you know, really the pinnacle of your field. Your CV is hugely impressive. I've when I go to read out the introduction for you, it's it's going to take me a couple of minutes to get through it all. Um, but I would love to know, kind of, for the general person listening to this, that they might want to build themselves a career. 
I wonder if you had perhaps any general career advice on on that. I, I as I as we started talking, um, I, on any career, not just my career, just on any career on oh, building, right. you know, building okay. a life that perhaps well, you're passionate about. Uh, education was an important uh, step up. For, education was hugely important for me um, in my own personal story. Um, I, I, I came from a family with not a lot of money and I was one of four children. I was the youngest and, um, I went to state schools that weren't very good. Um, and, and by the time I sort of realized that I wanted to have a, some sort of interesting career that I needed to go to university and I knuckled down and I just about scraped through my educational story is about just scraping through at every level, you know? And even though I was able to go on and get a, a very good education, I just got into the places I got into and, and did well enough and things like that. And, um, and for me, that's, that, 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 that's the, um, that, that's, that got me the opportunity. I would have never have gotten the job that I got without that education. But once I was in that door, I just worked my ass off. I was a scientist working in an engineering company where there were all engineers and technicians. I was the only one with a science background. I was a complete oddball. In a company of 85 people, I was the only one of its type. So I had to learn a whole nother skill. And, and I just worked very, very hard. And I, and I think if you, if you, if, if you want a career, not just a job, but a career, you have to invest. And whether it's investing in education, investing in learning above and beyond things, uh, that's investing in time, in yourself. Um, I, I think I was lucky that I had the right kind of... Um, personal sort of characteristics, you know, in terms of uh, my own sort of skills and interests and, 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 and maybe as much as anything, a passion to, 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 and an interest to really do the job right, to work harder than the next guy, you know, to make sure, to make sure you you did everything possible to be successful that's it you know it's it, it's down to hard work application and l actually less about uh less about innate intelligence or 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 or, or whatever you know um i'm not the smartest of the people i went to school with but but i think i probably worked uh, harder than 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 most and 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 that's where i got but if i guess that's the general thing if you want a career you have to look at investing and 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 that's and what what gets you to that ne next level and and take chances you know that's the one thing that i've done is i've taken chances in my career um you know and um and good luck <laughs> Because it's hard. It's not easy. I've got three children. They all graduated. All three graduated university last week. 
one graduation after the other, Wednesday, Thursday, and, a, and one was going to be on a Friday, but it was delayed. But anyhow, they all three finished university. And, uh, and, and, you know, these are kind of, I don't give them these speeches. I just, you know, my wife and I, through our parenting, hopefully they've taken on these, these lessons because she had a career as well. And, um, but I think it's very difficult for people their age. I was with um, my graduate school yesterday. We were on the Thames, uh, University of South Florida. They have a, a London thing where they have students in for, for, for a month and, and they taught courses in, and, and, uh, and, and they travel around a bit and everything like that. But the, 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 the course ended, so a hundred of us went out on the Thames and I was the alumni and um, one of three alumni and it was about 110 and I only spoke to one person. One person out of 110 came up to me and spoke to me, right? And they even said, listen, there's three alumni here. You know, if you want to learn about careers or about this or living abroad or whatever, come speak to these people. And one person came and she was really very interesting, very interesting story. And I can almost guarantee you she is going to be successful because while everybody else were having a bit of a jolly and taking selfies and maybe thinking about the party that they were going to that night, she came out at the end of it and walked all the way down to the end while I was sitting at the bow and came to speak to me. And, uh, and, and, and we shared a nice conversation and, uh, and, and I think she, she's going to do, she's going to do really well. So I'd been waiting for four years to speak to you. So she should have uh, taken the, taken the yeah. chance. <laughs> But Matt, I'd love to ask, uh, what kind of projects have you got going on at the moment? And where would you love for our audience to, to check out? Where do you want to send our guys? Right. Okay. Well, I, I oftentimes in the past, I couldn't say what I was working on because it was confidential for some reason. But I'm working on another, another um, what I would say, people project, public, public project. I'm volunteering my time again. And um, this has been going on for four years. Again, it's another one of these long developments. And this is um, myself and a group of people um, are, are working together to find the wreck of the Empire Windrush. And the M Empire Windrush is the ship that carried one of the first waves of Afro-Caribbean immigrants from the Caribbean to the UK, to England in 1948. And nearly 500 people were on board. And they came because they were promised um, citizenship, um, immediate citizenship uh, and, 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 and potential for work. And it was needed at the time it was the same year that the NHS was formed. It was needed at the time because this is post-war Britain, 48, so three years after the war. And the country was pretty much on its knees, wasn't it? And needed to be rebuilt in a lot of different ways. And it needed the workforce to do it. And that was the, that was the, um, that was the deal. And, um, 
and the wind rush only made that one voyage, but it's forever known as a symbol of these generations of people, now successive generations of people that have come here, settled from 48 all the way through the early 70s, and for their children that they've had here. Some who came as children and were educated here, worked here and had children, all different stories. Um, that sort of 500 has turned into half a million or more in terms of immigration alone, not just their, the ones that, uh, that, 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 that were born to uh, quote unquote Windrush generation people. And they've, that has been really, if you look back historically, as the beginning of, 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 of the Britain becoming a, a multicultural society um, in a major way. I mean, black people have been here in the country, go, go, goes back to Tudor times, goes back to Henry VIII. But in terms of a critical mass population that changed the face of the country for the better, in terms of their contributions to so many different fields, not just doing the jobs they did in the NHS and transport, but in terms of the arts, culture, you know, look at our national football team. How many, how many of the of the of the starting eleven, or how many of the squad, you know, can count as Windrush generation? It's nearly double figures. Um, and 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 so I I was asked. This isn't my idea. Somebody came to me with this idea that we should find the wreck of the Windrush and bring a piece of her back to England and to use it as a, as a monument, a sculpture to the, to the Windrush generation to commemorate, you know, their contribution to UK society, but also to mark that day um, in, in um, June 22nd, 1948, which is now recognized as Windrush Day in the country when that ship arrived to recognize that important historical milestone to have an object. And the object that makes the most sense is that is if you search Empire Windrush in Google, that photograph comes up of the stern of the ship. Um, it's docked in Tilbury, Port of London, in June of 1948. And there's all sorts of men hanging over the railings with their arms out raised, sort of going like that in celebration of coming to a new land, starting a new, new opportunity for them and new beginnings. And in the center of that picture, just above the name Empire Windrush in London is an anchor. It was a spare anchor. It's bolted to the outside of the hull. And an anchor is symbolic of a lot of those same things, belonging, hope, opportunity, anchoring somebody to, to a place. Um, people have a lot of times anchors on their tattoos. You know, that's a common theme. 
And so this anchor is of a significant size and weight that it can be used as a centerpiece for a national monument. So the idea is to find the wreck of the Windrush, recover the anchor, conserve it, bring it back, and then have a jury-led artistic competition of, of, of architects, sculptures, artists to come up with a with a with a with a design for the anchor to be used in this national monument to the Windrush generation. And that's what I've been working on for four years. And we've done all the due diligence. And now, now we are in the business of raising the money to do it. And we have a GoFundMe site. If you look on the GoFundMe page and type in Windrush Monument or Windrush Anchor Monument, it'll come up. Uh, uh, there's various ways you can find it. And again, it's being built sm smallly in stages. We're looking for initial sort of 80,000 pounds symbolically that would fund one day of the searching, uh, but we need a lot more. So we're going to corporate sponsors for that. And we, uh, you know, we've, we've got a, you know, we're, we're approaching uh, 10,000 now. So we're on a start. So we'll be again, grateful for every, any donation, small donation or whatever for that. Um, and um and that's 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 become something that's quite meaningful to me because personally i'm i'm an immigrant i'm an economic immigrant to this country i came 28 years ago and i had none of these difficulties um that that people are having you know the windrush scandal and all of that i had none of that i i was i was i was uh, met with open arms and i was sponsored to through my company to come here and my experience is is been nothing but uh, but 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 uh good things and uh and 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 so i i could understand um the difficulties that people had um and and so that's why it it, it means something to me personally as well we shall put a link in the description. Everybody listening on the audio can just swipe up for a YouTube audience. They can just click the description. David, uh, where can these guys connect with you? Me? Yes. Uh, <laughs> I people. I guess what social media? I'm not social. a. Yeah, I'm. I mean, I've got a Twitter page, don't I? I guess David L. Mearns or something like that. I think. Um, I'm not a. Uh, I, I, I mainly what how I use my social media is to um, I I'm not in a position that I need to promote myself. You know, I don't. Oh, right. I'm, I, okay. I'm not. You know, listen, there are books out there. You know, there there there. I've you can you can buy my books wherever you want to buy my books. I'm not in. I'm not into promo, you know promoting myself. What I'd like to do is I like to promote these causes or promote the project that I'm working on. That's that. That's the way that I use my social media. So, um, so I I do have a book. It's sold out. Uh, I well, I guess you can still buy copies. It's the Shipwreck Hunter, and it's a, um, a, cha a, a each chapter is a different shipwreck. It's the all the epic stories: the Hood, the 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 the, the uh, Sydney, the Centaur, Lacona, the the other one. They're interesting. They're, you know, they're interesting stories and. Uh, and that book was 2017. So it's, uh, it's my last book. Um, you could still buy it or you can get it on eBay or whatever. Uh, uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and yeah. And, 
And if you're interested in what I do, I I, I, I tweet about oceanographic things, things that mean stuff to me, um, but mostly about these kind of projects and about the maritime world and about shipwrecks, I guess, you know. Thank you so, so much for, for coming on the show. Um, uh, you know, we would love to to do it again. And um, man, I, I'd be following you on Twitter for a long time. So once again, thank you for all the work that you've done and for taking the time, especially to come on the show. Right. Well, it's been my pleasure. And, and listen, if you have a big Cardiff audience, let them know, you know, we appreciated all the search during the Emiliano, there's the support during the Emiliano Salas search. We knew that Cardiff uh, as a club and as the fan base was, was, was um, part of it. And, and, uh, and, and those things that I saw, you know, that the, the clubs do were very emotional to me. That, that, that's what, the, the the fact that I had some involvement of that is quite an important thing to me personally. So uh, I appreciate that.